Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Raising the Roof. I'm Nick Atkin, I'm the Chief Exec at Yorkshire Housing, and you're listening to the show that brings together business leaders and industry experts to unpick the hot topics in both housing and beyond. Today, this one is episode six of season two. We're talking all things regulation and whether this could be the solution to housing's reputational crises. Now, hang on, whilst it can sound a bit dull and boring to some, don't turn off. I think if ever there's a time that we see the crucial role that regulation has in in raising standards, now is that time. So definitely loads we can we can learn from and understand. So joining me today are two guests who bring their own unique knowledge and perspective. First up is Laura McGazy. Laura joined the National Housing Federation, which is the trade body for housing associations, as a policy lead just about two years ago. But before that, Laura worked at DEFRA and represented the UK at EU and international meetings to promote and also deliver the UK's objectives. So Laura's travelled far and wide, and she's always had that passion to to do work that makes a positive contribution. So what better home to find herself in than the housing sector? Now, as somebody who does travel, then we thought we'd need to find out a little bit more about Laura's travel habits. So we do like to do a bit of digging on, on this podcast. So here's a few things that you won't find in her LinkedIn profile or biog. She does love travel, but only to warmer destinations, as she absolutely hates the cold. Which then begs the question, why or why, Laura, did you end up in Finland? And not only did you end up in a cold Scandinavian country, but whilst there you thought, you know what? I'll try ice swimming. Now, for somebody who likes warm climates, that doesn't sound like a great combo. And I'm reliably informed it took you an age to get into the water, much to the amusement probably of the of the Finnish locals. But even worse, after about five seconds, you swiftly jumped out again and straight into the sauna. So definitely one for YOY box in terms of for you to pick up later. And I also understand that not only that, but you've got a talent for photobombing. Again, a reliable source tells me that you were just a few metres away from walking into and interrupting Tom Hanks in the middle of a red carpet premiere for one of his movies. So you photobomb and you go to cold countries despite liking the heat. Lots of there to unpick before we even get to regulation. But before we do that, I'll introduce my next guest. I'm delighted to be joined by Gavin Smart. Many of you listening will know that Gavin is the chief exec of the Chartered Institute of Housing, which is known as the CIH, and that's a professional body for people working in housing across the UK and also internationally. He's led the transformation of that organisation to provide what it does now, which is a range of quality services, as well as support for its members. It's also been advancing its role to train and qualify the wider housing profession, which are I suspect we're going to get on to later. And he's also regularly involved in policy and good practice work. He does have a contact book that some will give their right arm for, and that enables him to get engaged with government at all levels across all parts of the UK. But what doesn't he normally tell you? Well, prior to the joining the CIH, despite how polished and professional he always appears, he's had a bit of a mixed career. He's been an, an academic researcher. 
He's been a civil servant. He's worked for trade bodies. But in his student days, he even trained to be a clown. And like me, he confesses to the 2% rule to sound credible. This is where you only have to know 2% more than the person sat opposite you to sound credible. But don't believe him. As in my opinion, Gavin is probably one of the brightest people I know in the housing world. So don't let that 2% kid you. He really knows his stuff. But he is condemned by birthright to the trials and trauma, as he describes it, of following the fortunes of Welsh rugby. And like many people with a Welsh heritage, he sings enthusiastically. But unlike most Welsh people, he has variable quality in the, the output of his singing. And finally, he also has a habit of, of adopting rescue dogs. He's racked up three so far, which seem to get bigger every time, with the last one weighing in at a whopping seven stones. So again, something that we'll probably need to get to at, at the end. That's our guests. Let's get into the issues with a bit of an honest appraisal, really, of where the housing sector is now and, and how we got here. So I suppose I'll kick off firstly. The, the reputation of the housing sector has taken a, a real battering over, over the last few months, probably the last six to nine months. And I suppose, you know, how have we got here? Do you think the sector has, has failed to self-regulate effectively? And has that possibly led to, to tragedies such as the shocking death of Arwa Bishak and also the events at Grenfell to, to name but two. So I'll throw this one out. Laura, let's come to you first on this one. Yeah, so I think in terms of where we've got up to here, I think the examples we've seen in the media of the living standards of some residents is obviously completely unacceptable. And we know that housing associations strive to get it right for every resident, but what we've seen so far is that's not always been the case. Um, I think some of the examples we've seen do not meet the standards that housing associations want to deliver. So criticism in these cases is completely understandable. We know that housing providers must act to make sure that tragedies such as the death of Arab Ishak never happen again. And obviously the Secretary of State was right to call on the sector to respond to the coroner's recommendations. And we have welcomed the steps the government is taking in response to the tragic death of Arab Ishak. So I think in terms of the housing association where we are now, I think we definitely support the development of specific commitments for tackling issues like dump and mould, and obviously the clarity for tenants and what they should be expecting from their landlord when they're faced with this kind of problems in their home. I think the vast majority of homes are of good quality, but we recognise there's definitely room for improvement. So continuing to ensure that we're meeting the decent home standards is obviously a high priority for um, housing associations. But there's also a number of factors that have contributed to instances where maybe social housing homes are falling below the expected standards. So some of these include homes being no longer fit for purpose, often due to their age and the nature of the origin of construction. And social housing is rented at below market rents and the sector continues to face growing pressures to be able to deliver against their core purpose, which while meeting additional demands such as achieving net zero, remediating buildings, and of course, the issue we have now with inflation. So I think all of these things are contributions to where we are now. I think there needs to be more done as the report from the Leveling Up and Housing Communities Committee. It was very clear about the need to address poor quality homes, but also called for the government to commit to building more homes and introduce funding specifically for regeneration to tackle disrespect. So I think that this has to be looked at in a broader sense as in the bigger picture. I think essentially dedicated funding for housing-led generation represents an opportunity to deliver new high quality homes and address some of the fundamental structural issues to ensure homes are fit for purpose. That's a cracking summary to kick us off with, Laura, of, of uh, the last sort of six months in probably a great three minute summary. So 
Thanks for that. I'm probably come back to you just to pick up some of the, the points you raised, but I just wanted to sort of throw the same question over to Gavin and get his perspective as well. Thanks, Nick. I would agree with a lot of what Laura has said, actually. It, it's when you look at an issue like this, I, I think it's it's too simple to, to pick up on a, a single cause. But it's clear that what has happened across the last couple of years, the focus that the sector has been under, has demonstrated that we have at times fallen short and fallen woefully short of the standards that we would set ourselves. I think it's been a tough time for the sector as well because we have been going through, haven't we, a bit of a, a sort of Mitchell and Webb moment. You know, are we the, are we the bad guys? And that's what it yeah. feels like when you when you see the coverage. That coverage is not representative of the vast majority of what happens in the sector, which I think consists of a lot of organisations and individuals doing really, really good work. It's sometimes life changing work, but too much has not been quite right. I don't think it's entirely accurate to kind of subscribe to the notion that somehow as a whole the sector's taking its eye off the ball, its eye off purpose, but I think there have been moments where things have slipped, there have been moments where things have slipped maybe culturally, maybe sometimes in terms of kind of a process, in terms of the actions of individuals, but as Laura also pointed out actually there's never a single cause for this kind of thing. I think you could look at where else has the sector been focused in terms of its efforts? You can look at the funding and the policy environment in the way that Laura described. And as we're going to do on this podcast, you can ask questions about, would we have seen a different set of outcomes if the, if the regulatory regime had been different? We've been working through a period of about 10 years where there's been a very minimal kind of backstop, a consumer element to the regulatory framework. And maybe, you know, part of this story is what gets measured gets done, what's at the heart of attention gets covered. And I think that's been part of the story as well. So it's difficult to unpick. It's difficult to, I think, nail it down to a single cause. But at times, have we let ourselves down? And more importantly, have we let down the people in the communities we exist to serve? Yes, we have. And I would agree with Laura. You know, our job is to recognise that whilst that might not be representative of all that the sector does, our first job is to say sorry and is to put that right and to make sure that those things never happen again. And things like the Better Social Housing Review, the work that individual organisations are doing to challenge themselves, to raise their performance, to try to minimise the, the space where mistakes, poor action of that sort can happen, is all really, really important. But we never, ever want to be in a place again where we're, we are talking about multiple lives lost as a result of, of, of housing organisations having failed, where coroners are saying to us that tenants and residents, let alone their children, are dying as a direct result of the quality of the homes that we provide. And it's a difficult place for us as a sector to be because it's not an instant fix. It's going to take some time to work through it and to get it right. But there is no alternative. That's the work that we have to do. Great, great. Thank you, Gavin. And just just really sort of coming back to you both, because I, I think you both mentioned the focus that regulation gives. But also, Laura, you also mentioned, as you did, Gavin, as well, the role of, of regeneration. So I just want to come back on both of those if I could. And, and the first one on, on regulation, really. And I suppose just your view on whether the, the move to a more sort of consumer regulation focus is welcome and, and has it covered all the, the right points? And do things like the tenant satisfaction measures, are they, are they going to also support the delivery of that? Or are they just a simple can opener, if you want, in terms of relative performance? So, Gavin, can I just come back to you, just ask you to pick up on any of those bits that you might want to, and then I'll, I'll flip over to Regan. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So I, I think that, you know, if the analysis that there's no single factor is right, well, also, that must be, mean that it's true that there's no single thing that's going to fix the situation. Yeah. But 
I think that it would be fair comment to say that for about a decade, the regulatory framework for social housing has been kind of out of whack with the regulatory frameworks that you see in lots of other regulated industries, where they often pay attention to the consumer experience, to quality, to pricing, to standards. Following the abolition of the TSA, we did end up with a regulatory framework in housing, which was comparatively weak in that space and had a very, very high bar in terms of the ability of the regulator to get involved, which was this serious detriment test. And actually, the serious detriment plus an analysis that the that the detriment was caused by sort of systemic failing as opposed to a kind of an unusual individual circumstance. I think that didn't help. And I think our settlement was at odds to most other regulatory settlements. And coming back into line with the vast majority of regulatory settlements feels to me to be the right place for us to be. Because to engage in just a bit of kind of policy wonkery, you know, it's worth our listeners reflecting <laughs> on the fact that you know, why do you get regulatory interventions when you get regulatory interventions where we judge that there's a there's market failure, as the economist would have it, that somehow something is happening, which means that left to its own devices, that this, this sector, this industry, this market won't work properly. And yeah. in the case of social housing, it's quite clear that you've got an imbalance of power, of information and of choice between... Uh, landlords and tenants and residents. You can't just up sticks and move somewhere else if you don't like what's going on. There's an imbalance in terms of power and resources. That's classically the case where you get a regulatory intervention and the regulatory intervention in the housing on the consumer side has been weak. TSMs, will they help? Yes. It's about adding a number of different things to the jigsaw, but some, some comparable, some clear, some understood data that enables us as a sector individual housing professionals and tenants or residents to take a view about what's going on, I think is helpful. Are they the be all end or no? Are they as likely to be kind of can openers as they are dials? Yes, they are. Does, does that matter? No, I don't think it does. I think I, I think it's about saying we have had a framework that, that was lacking and let's let's move to a different kind of framework. Will it be perfect? Will we make changes in the future when we realise that this bit or that bit wasn't quite as good as we hoped? Yeah, I would imagine that we will. Most other regulatory frameworks do that. Why would we imagine that we're any different? Yeah, that's great. And you're already disproving the claim that you made about the 2% rule there, Gavin. A a very, very (laughs) articulate and well thought through response to a a follow-up prompter. Laura, can I come back to you then on regeneration? Because I know this is something the the National Housing Federation have, have been campaigning on for for several years about the fact that there are some parts of our housing stock that are past their sell-by date and the the current government approach on on net additionality in other words it will only fund additional homes in addition to, to what's already there so just your perspective really on on how regeneration if and when that comes back into vogue like like all things in fashion these things do come around eventually so in terms of what's the potential role for for regen in in helping us address some of these quality and standard issues yeah i think uh, regeneration has a big role to play i think there is an element here in terms of where we've ended up being because of lack of funding and the supply of social homes. But I think with regeneration, we can look to fix some of those fundamental issues that are leading to low and poor quality homes. And I think regeneration gives us an opportunity to address these issues, but also other significant issues, for example, decarbonizing homes. And we can do that at the same time simultaneously as we fix the issues that already exist. Spot on. So regeneration always gets my vote. So 
Come the revolution, Laura, when you're standing for president of the UK, I'll be I'll be right behind you on the regeneration party. So move, moving on, I want to just sort of look at some of the legal instruments and some of the legal changes that are coming down the line. And the most obvious one being the, the social housing regulation bill. And I'm just interested in terms of what what impact you feel that will have for the people who live in our homes in terms of the difference that it will will make to them. But before I, I come to that, I've got to come to you, Gavin, and just ask you about the amendment in terms of requirement to professionally train and qualify frontline housing managers and what your sort of view and opinion on that might be. Yeah, thank you, Nick. That amendment was tabled very late. And I, and I think we can regard it as being the outcome or one of the outcomes from the government's review of professionalism and qualifications, which they, they flagged up in the green paper and the white paper that preceded the bill. And that had been going on for a while. But I think then there was a period of, well, what would you describe it as intense, uh, at least sort of soul searching, if not a bit of to and froing within the civil service while they tried to think about, so what are we going to do about this? And and we have ministers very strongly saying we, we want to take some action. And where we ended up with was an amendment tabled to the bill that says that directors of housing should have a maximum of a level five qualification and senior housing managers a level four qualification. Some some definitional text that helps to understand using scope for both of those mm-hmm. things. For us at CIH, we think that in a lot of ways, this is a very, this is a very helpful development because it's probably the first time in a long time, if ever, maybe, actually, that we've seen central government really put their shoulder to the wheel of professional standards of professionalisation and say, actually, housing is something special. And it does require us to think about it in that way. Now, we hadn't sat our stall out and said that mandatory qualifications are you know, is the single most important thing that you can do, because actually... Yeah. We take a view that professionalism is about knowledge and skills, but it's also about behaviours and attitudes, values, ethics, codes of conduct. Mm. That's a complete picture of a professional. But governments say, actually, for key roles, we think there should be a, you know, we kind of put a flaw here and say we expect the people in key roles have some kind of evidence that they've got the right knowledge and the right skills to do these roles properly and to ensure that we get good outcomes of tenants and residents. I think it's a welcome development. I tend to conduct some sort of simplistic thought experiments you know on average do we think that this kind of thing is likely to make things better or to make things worse it seems to me that it's quite hard to argue that it's likely to make things worse and actually it puts housing on a footing with lots of other public sector and other regulated professions where there are expectations of minimum knowledge and qualification of people in, in key roles many of them roles that people in the housing sector would rely on. And we set store by the fact that those people are qualified. It doesn't seem to me to be a bad thing. Maybe that our tenants and residents can set store that, that, that we are qualified. I know that it's not universally popular and no sector ever kind of joyously celebrated additional regulatory burdens. <laughs> um, but I think on average, you know, we will find that, that this is a manageable requirement and it does at least put a floor that says that everybody in these key roles will be operating from an established base of knowledge and skills. Will it stop things going wrong ever? Of course not. Does it legislate to prevent us from people simply behaving badly or making mistakes? No, it doesn't. But no regulatory framework does that. On average, does it move us to a place where the government is saying housing is something special and we should recognise that and the professionalisation of the sector is a good thing? Yes, it does. And on those grounds, yeah, I welcome it. Thanks, Gavin. And I think I want to come back in a short while on the point you made about ethics, but I think you've made a, a strong case as 
as we'd reasonably expect from the uh, the chief executive of the CIH for the place that training and professionalisation has in the sector. But I think you, you have made some really strong arguments. Uh, Laura, can I, can I come across to you and just maybe some of the wider benefits or potential impacts of the social housing regulation bill in terms of what you feel that could bring in terms of positive change? So whether that's about, you know, improved standards, higher customer satisfaction, greater accountability for housing providers or... Or, or maybe perhaps some of the risks there might be, for example, an impact on longer term investment. Just some of the things that, that you think we need to be keeping an eye on as the bill goes through the royal assent process and then actually starts to, to take effect. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, I think we and our members have welcomed the Social Housing Regulation Bill, which will, of course, begin to deliver the ambition set out in the Social Housing White Paper. So we welcome it in terms of giving tenants greater powers and improving their access to swift redress, for example, by removing the serious detriment tests, as Gavin mentioned. For housing associations, I think the new regime will mean being ahead of the curve. It will mean taking proactive steps to regularly monitor the condition of homes, ensuring complaint processes are accessible and effective, and ensure mechanisms are in place to meaningfully engage with residents. So the sector will also need to consider how they effectively demonstrate transparency and accountability in light of the new measures that are coming forward. And of course, the bill will bring with it new tools, as you mentioned, such as tenant satisfaction measures and new access to information scheme to help tenants understand what their landlords are doing, where they're at. And of course, our members have already been working towards improving accountability and strengthening their relationship with their residents through our sector-wide initiative Together with Tenants which closely aligns with the ambitions of social housing white paper, which is all about making sure your voice is heard, having your complaints dealt with fairly and quickly, and just in general, improving that relationship between tenants and their landlords. I think the sector is already demonstrating their commitment to understanding where things have gone wrong and putting measures in place to put things right. As Gavin mentioned, the Better Social Housing Review is already uh, going through and is developing an action plan to help the sector implement some of those recommendations that have been set out which includes reviewing the condition of homes and coming up with a way to do that all together as a sector. I think that will help address some of the issues around quality and ensure that tenants are being prioritised at all times. For the customers and the tenants, the social housing bill means they'll have access to information on how their landlord is performing. They'll have access to their complaints being dealt with as soon as they can. So I think the vast majority of customers are satisfied with the service that they receive from their landlords, but the new regime, for example, the tenant sectant measures will provide landlords with the additional insight into customers' experiences that can lead to better decision-making and a more targeted approach to improving services. So over time, I expect that we'll see an increase in customer satisfaction. But I think in general, I think the bill is definitely a positive step forward and we do definitely welcome it. That's great. Thank you. And can I just follow with both of you on, on something that you've mentioned? Because you both made reference to the, the Better Social Housing Review. And I, I wondered what your response would be, because there seems to be two schools of thought on this. There's those that believe it's a force for good and it was the right thing at the right time. And then there are probably a, a smaller cohort of people who sort of saying, well, it's just stating the blindingly obvious of what we're already doing. I just wondered what your message would be to the latter group of people, perhaps who are a little bit more neutral, should we say, around embracing what's come out of the Better Social Housing Review. And I know there's only a small number of people who, who fit into this category, but what your message would be to them? Laura, can I come back to you on that first? Yeah, definitely. I think the Better Social Housing Review is really an option or maybe an opportunity for us as a sector to come together and agree that, yes, these are the problems that we have, these are the problems that have been identified, 
And the next step of that is really, this is how we're going to address them together as a sector. I think it's really recognizing that things have gone wrong and we do need to do a lot to make sure that they're right. I think in combination with the social housing bill, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. It's almost as though we're going before the bill comes forward. So if anything, the Better Social Housing Review will help members prepare to implement the Social Housing Regulation Bill and prepare for the new regime. By the time they implement some of these actions, they'll be in a very good position to find themselves compliant with the regulator. So I think overall, it's a positive step forward. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. I've not actually, I've never thought of it through the lens of this is really good preparation for, for what's coming out of the bill. So the linkage there is definitely something I'll steal with pride and, and reuse that somewhere else. So thank you for that, Laura. Gavin, what would your message be? My message would be would be very similar to Laura's. I know that this was not entirely without controversy. I think some people in the sector still think it was the wrong call for search and the National House Federation to do this. I would respectfully disagree. I think that one of the reasons that, that sectors end up with professional bodies and trade bodies is sometimes to take action on behalf of a whole sector because actually one of the things it's very frustrating for people who are individuals organizations to understand is that the public at large and the media out there actually don't really see the difference quite often yeah. they, they don't understand the different organizations frankly they don't always understand the difference in housing association and, and, and the local council and actually some problems are kind of collectively owned even if we didn't all collectively contribute to it and it it makes a strong case for a collective response. Now, I think that's what the Better Social Housing Review is. It's important that I should be clear about the purpose of the review. We didn't set the review up as a kind of PR fix. We set the review up because we were saying, look, there are, there's enough evidence now that there are, albeit a small proportion, a small, a small proportion, but a large number of cases where clearly things aren't right. We're getting stuff wrong and we're beginning to look like we're on occasion repeating some of the same mistakes. Yeah. So actually, we should put our hands up and say, we need to explore this. We should try to understand if we have got a problem and if there are things that we need to do to try to fix it. And you can either explore it yourself and do that sort of kind of self-referral, which is not universally popular right now, or you can ask an independent panel to, to go away and to explore the issue and come back and, and make recommendations. And that's what, that's what we did. And it's important for your listeners to understand the panel, where they went, who they spoke to, how they did their work, completely independent of CIH and the, the NAPFED. Our job is to work with a, a group of housing associations as they bring together an action plan to respond to the review. Action plan will, in no small part, be pretty good rehearsal for some of the things we're going to have to do in response yeah. to the regulatory changes anyway. The second thing to say, and to, to address a bit of a kind of a direct criticism that's made of the review, I think some people say to me, well, you know, if you hadn't done this blooming review, we'd get you know, less coverage on the telly and the radio and the newspapers and it would all be fine. You should spend your time talking about the good stuff. I think I would say two things in response to that. I'm not I'm not sure really that the review is responsible for the coverage that the sector is receiving. Yeah. I think that was happening anyway. I, I think actually, although the main target of the review was not PR, to be able to say, look, here is evidence that we get it and we are doing something is not yeah. unhelpful in that environment. I'm sure, like Laura, I do want to spend my time talking about the brilliant stuff that the sector mm -hmm. does, the brilliant stuff that housing professionals do, the way in which they change lives on a daily basis. But the problem with a reputational issue of this sort is it just gets in the way. And yeah. you can't move the agenda on if you aren't seen to do something about it. And it's not enough just to talk about it. We have to do something. So we will be judged by not what we do and not what we say. So I think necessary condition for Laura and I to be able to make the case for the brilliant work the sector does is first of all to be involved in a piece of work that says we get that things aren't quite right, we're on it, we're fixing it, this is what we're going to do. And by doing that, we will earn the right 
to talk about the vast majority of the work that the sector does. So that would be my pitch to people who think this is not a great idea. I know I will not convince everybody, but I can tell you and your listeners that we thought long and hard about it and we, we yeah. did it because we really thought it was the right call. Yeah, and then, you know, I absolutely support the better social housing review i think we were you know repeatedly taking hits to to our reputation based upon you know cases that were in the media that that were you know that were indefensible but i think we needed to have a coordinated and a joined up approach and i think my response to my peers and other organizations when they perhaps been a bit grumpy about it has been well well, what were you doing to stem that tide really and i and i think individually I don't think any of us could. I think we needed a collective approach and a bit of a reset almost for for the sector in terms of our commitment to making the changes to prevent those types of problems from arising in the future. I think that's why I agree. And I suppose what I would say to people also is, you know, we know that as a sector in some senses, when we, we, we sort of succeed together, you know, we all get a kind of a, a lovely reputational glow when one housing organisation does something good. <laughs> we know my association must be good as well you know and we get a reflected glory but you know the, the sort of harsh truth about if we win together means we also lose together and that means when things go wrong we suffer a collective hit on our reputation and that's why i think we need to do this collectively it's not enough for a single organization to try to say we're going to deal with this on our own because i i think that doesn't it doesn't work you have to address the problem as as the problem is perceived to be by by the media and by the public at large and, and I think that makes it collective uh, also there are enough I think cases now spread across a large enough number of landlords to mean that trying to argue that this is sort of an individual issue doesn't work uh, and we know that when other sectors try to say well it's just you know it's some bad actors or it's some failing organizations we know how we feel when we watch the news yeah. why would why would yeah. we expect other people to feel any different yeah. about us <laughs> yeah the same principles apply the Pesky sands of time are, are working against us because I did want to talk about what we can learn from other sectors. But I think what you've you've actually done is tempted me to continue a conversation around culture instead. And I think certainly some of the issues that we've seen, you could argue, have been a reflection of, of culture in organisations. So I suppose coming back to, to regulation, and I suppose this might be a bit of a chicken and egg question, so apologies in advance, but... Can regulation fix culture? Can regulation help get culture back to where it needs to be? And I suppose if not, then then what will? Laura, I'll come back to you. Yeah, um, I think regulation can definitely go a long way towards driving and influencing culture of change. But regulation alone will not deliver the desired outcomes. I think steps to driving meaningful change come from visible and good leadership transparency and collaborating with all stakeholders to deliver the change and bring about the right behaviours. So for Housing Association, this means putting their core purpose again at the heart of everything they do, which is to provide safe, good quality homes and services to residents and building successful places where people want to live. A culture that values ethical behaviour, transparency and accountability is crucial for ensuring that safety and well-being of residents. So I guess they both have to work together. I think the Social Housing Regulation Bill is going to bring about some of those regulation fixes that might help bring and drive the right culture. But again, it's about those desired behaviours. I think it's similar to what Gavin was saying before about professional standards and professional qualifications. The question about does a professional qualification change behaviour? We don't know that. We know that it's important to have those qualifications and definitely try and make sure that those people in those positions know what they're doing and they can carry that role appropriately. 
but does that mean that it's going to change their behavior does that mean they're going to be able to treat residents with respect so again the two have to work in tandem yeah it's got some great points and i love that that phrase that you know regulation has a place but it's the core purpose and putting that at heart what we do that that really makes a difference so yeah that's a that's a cracking takeaway for me so thanks laura gavin same question back to you in short no regulation can't do the the work of culture no it can't but can it can it help absolutely because it becomes part of the environment in which we're all operating in and to some degree you can think about it as being a set of guide rails you know not everybody will like that as an answer because i think proper grown-ups would say you know we will we do this anyway irrespective of what the regulator does or doesn't ask us to do and i would say quite right too but a regulatory framework at least at some level trying to ensure consistency across the whole other sector but Whose responsibility is, is culture and values? Well, it's ours as organisations, and as Laura said, it's particularly the responsibility of, of, of leaders within that environment to set out a stall to say, for us, this is what it's about. This is what we say good is. This is how we want to be. This is how we're going to behave, even if nobody else is telling us to do it and no one else is watching. It's about yeah. us, our values and our purpose, and this is how we interpret that in this place. And there will be shades of that. You know, different organisations will approach that differently. I think that's fine. But culture you can't kind of outsource responsibility for culture to regulation to law to ministers to anyone it's our responsibility and we have to do it yeah absolutely so again great way to close things up there from both of you in terms of those those answers i want to just come to our quick fire round really now so this is where we normally ask you just to answer with the first thing that comes into your head, which can be dangerous, but short and sharp. Laura, I'm going to come to you first. And my question really is, other than don't go cold water swimming in one of the coldest countries in the world, what's the one piece of advice you would go back and tell your younger self? Well, Nick, I like to tell myself that I'm still young, but maybe... (laughs) Even younger self, Laura, even even younger younger. self. (laughs) That's great. But maybe to learn to appreciate and enjoy things in the moment. I think most of us are always in a hurry to know what comes next and ready to do the next thing, but it prevents us from taking the time to simply enjoy the season we're in. So I think that's something I would definitely tell my younger, younger self. (laughs) Yeah, and I have to say that's one of the best pieces of many, many pieces of advice that my wife has given me as well. Yeah, I was always looking forward and she sort of said, you need to soak in what's happening around you. Great advice, only because you agree with Mrs. Atkins. So yeah, Gavin, over to you. Flavors are the same sort of thing. Nick, never believe your own hype. It's really important. You never think about yourself as being better than other people think you are. But but more importantly, actually, I think it's really important to recognise that imposter syndrome is real. You know, and I would have said to my younger self, actually, you do know they're all making it up as well, don't you? <laughs> it's important not to kid yourself that everybody else in the room or in the professional, wherever you are, is kind of super talented, super confident, have got all the answers that, that they haven't actually it's really important every now and again just to stop and look back and measure the distance traveled because yeah. we're always thinking about what next how, what else do i need to do how hard do i need to push myself every now and again just recognize where you've come from and what you've already achieved because that's the fuel that will get you on the next bit of the journey yeah absolutely both ding dong answers as i as i always refer to it in fact so good that we're now planning for season three and you've already given me an idea now for season three so you might end up getting invited back to talk about a completely different topic but for now it's time to close the door on this episode of the podcast a massive massive thank you to to both laura and gavin but also a huge thank you to all of you who are listening at the moment because you've chosen to to tune into this episode 
Please remember, um, all of our previous episodes from both season two and also season one are available via your usual podcast providers. Our next episode is all about retrofit, which if you're just starting out in your housing career, could be a job for life because it's at least an investment for the next 30 years. So please remember to hit subscribe and that way you don't miss a thing. But for now, thanks once again for listening.